All right, well, welcome everyone. My name is Dr. Clint Work. I am fellow and director of academic affairs here at KEI. And tonight's event features a conversation between Dr. Jerome Kim, who's the director general of the International Vaccine Institute or IVI, and Salome da Silva Duarte Lepez, a researcher and analyst of public health policy. This conversation is part of KEI's effort, its broader effort to build upon some of our previous programming and publications and to deepen our understanding of some of the key issues that, that those programs and publications explore. And just on a personal note, before I do introduce our two speakers, this is programs like this are a wonderful element of my job because the, the topics of discussion tonight are, are very much out of the purview of, of my expertise. So I get to remain ever the student and I have wonderful experts and teachers uh, from whom to learn. So I'm very grateful to have both of you here tonight. And now to introduce uh, our two participants, Dr. Jerome Kim, as I mentioned, is the Director General of IVI and an international expert on the development and evaluation of vaccines. Prior to IVI, he served as the Principal Deputy of the U.S. Military HIV Research Program and the Chief of the Laboratory of Molecular Virology and Pathogenesis at the Walter Reed Army Institute of Research. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me, and he was also the U.S. Army Program Manager for HIV vaccines. Dr. Kim is an adjunct professor in the Department of Medicines at the Uniformed Services University of Health Sciences in Bethesda, Maryland, an adjunct professor at the Graduate School of Public Health at Yonsei University in South Korea, and an honorary professor at the University of Rwanda. And he was also named a distinguished visiting professor at Seoul National University in 2022. So I will leave it to you, Dr. Kim, to work out that sticky rivalry between Yonsei and SNU. Uh, and he has authored over 350 publications. Uh, Salome de Silva Duarte Lepez, who will lead tonight's conversation with Dr. Kim, is a researcher and analyst in health policy with a background in neuroscience and rare neuromuscular diseases. She completed her master's in public health at Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health with a thesis that focused on COVID-19 policy in South Korea. Salome was also one of the co-authors of a paper that previously was published by KEI as part of its academic paper series, or APS, titled South Korea as a Global Vaccine Hub. And the paper, which is available on our website, explored how South Korea was spurred by various issues, such as vaccine nationalism and other access challenges, to establish a national strategic policy to become a global vaccine hub, not only to meet the current and future public health needs of its own citizens, but also to assist low and middle income countries or LMICs facing even starker obstacles in accessing safe and effective vaccines. And to bolster this policy, the South Korean government entered partnerships with various international organizations, namely the WHO, the Asian Development Bank, and the International Vaccine Institute or IVI by establishing training hub programs for a global biomanufacturing workforce. So it's in the spirit of building upon that previous research that KEI is very pleased to again partner with you, Salome, on tonight's interview with Dr. Kim. So without further ado, I wanna hand things over to you, Salome. Again, thank you so much, KEI, for hosting this conversation and for having conversation or letting us have conversations about public health and uh, science diplomacy in South Korea. 
And again, welcome, Dr. Kim. It's amazing to be able to talk to you again. A year and a half ago, we were first speaking on uh, the announcement of the WHO hub in South Korea and how IVI was going to play a role and South Korea in this ecosystem. So I'm really, really grateful uh, there was time today and you're offering us your time to expand on now, a year and a half later, the progress and the amazing achievements uh, that have occurred. Uh, but before we talk about all of that, as Clint said, there are perhaps some listeners today that are less familiar about uh, public health issues and scientific uh, progress in South Korea, as well as science diplomacy. So let's go back to the basics. Let's go back to the International Vaccine Institute, IVI. Um, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about IVI's mission and how it came to be an open in South Korea. All right. Um, thanks, and it's a real pleasure to be on this um, on this podcast with you. Um, so, the International Vaccine Institute was founded in 1997 as the only international organization uh, dedicated to vaccine development. Our mission is to discover, develop, and deliver safe, effective, and affordable vaccines for global health. And so, what does that mean? It means that you know the oral cholera vaccine that was developed by IVI and has now been technology transferred to a number of different companies around the world is the global supply of oral cholera vaccine. So when you ever hear about a cholera outbreak anywhere in the world, a vaccine that originated in a laboratory at IVI and is now manufactured by different companies around the world is being used to thwart that outbreak. And increasingly, hopefully, there'll be, you know, that vaccine will be made available to national programs to help reduce the endemic burden uh, of cholera disease or in the case of a different vaccine, a typhoid conjugate vaccine, that vaccine also has been technology transferred to different companies. The first approval, national approval in Korea, was granted to uh, SK Bioscience, and that vaccine is now um, at WHO for review and hopefully for approval for pre-qualification. So our goal is to develop vaccines for unincentivized diseases or unincentivized vaccines mm -hmm. uh, for diseases that are of significant burden in low and middle income countries, but for which um, large you know, Western man, uh, vaccine manufacturers don't necessarily see a, a market that would be sustainable for them. Um, I think our approach is very much driven by a knowledge that there are capable manufacturers uh, all over the world and that these manufacturers uh, can supply globally hundreds of millions of doses of necessary vaccines, and IVI is happy to be a partner with all of them. Thank you. Uh, and that's a great introduction to uh, IVI's role in the WHO Biomanufacturing Hub. So as I was introducing a little bit earlier, in March 2022, the WHO announced the opening of the South Korean uh, hub following the South African hub, WHO hub, which opened in the summer 2021. The South African hub is focused on mRNA biotechnology, whereas this South Korean hub was to focus on biomanufacturing. And if I understand correctly, IVI is the host organization of this hub. And while both hubs act very differently and have different means of achieving their broader goal, this common broader goal is to address public health disparity and reduce scientific disparities be, uh, in countries, um, often in LMIC countries that do not have that background um, in um, producing um, aspects of public health resources to address future 
pandemics and epidemics. So I'm wondering if you could talk about uh, this hub, how South Korea became to be chosen for biomanufacturing and representing biomanufacturing in the WHO and uh, how it works to address health equity. So I think um, it, the the biomanufacturing hub is, is a little bit complicated, but really, um, in a sense, IVI is only an implementing partner. Uh, this mm -hmm. is a WHO uh, Ministry of Health and Welfare of the Government of Korea um, partnership, and we are we are implementing um, so that when it comes to developing the curriculum, um, finding the uh, faculty, uh, providing the the training facilities, IVI arranges all of that. You know, we've developed all the online training modules, which actually are available now for anyone to look at because we make them publicly available. And then this is just a part of the ongoing IVI mission in, in capacity building. As an organization uh, that receives development assistance, uh, we take the mission of, um, of technology transfer capacity building very seriously. So, you know, IVI has done 12 technology transfers of six different vaccines to different companies around the world. You know, we have operated now, I think this is the 21st version of the one-week course in vaccine development. We call it the vaccinology course. Um, it's available in person and online. And, um, and I think over 3,000 people have successfully taken that course. So over the course of you know 20 years, it's uh, there have been a lot of students of that course, and many of them have come back to the longer course in vaccine development, which is two weeks, or the we call it the GXP course. It's a GC, uh, GLP, GCP, GMP, all the um, international standards for different aspects of vaccine development. Um, and so, let's see the the vaccine development course, two week course, has been given twice now. Uh, first in 20. 22 and now in 2023 and the GXP course was given in 2022 and the and the 2023 version should start next month oh sorry the month after October uh, and actually this year for the first time there will be two uh, wet trainings so this is actual hands-on manufacturing training uh, in different facilities in Korea now rather than um, hundreds of students these courses have 20. At a maximum because these are very um, intensive um, and have a very high student uh, sorry a low student to teacher ratio so five students for every instructor and um, you know we're happy that we could start um, thanks to funding from different organizations including uh, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation which is paying for students from Kenya uh, to come and take the, the first version of this course we're hoping to offer it again three or four times next year um, so, you know, the, the the training hub is moving forward. I think the government of Korea and the WHO are getting close to actually uh, having a formal agreement. And, and IVI is uh, very happy to be a, a part of the the partnership that implements the, the this training. I see. And so those two courses have now been active. They've been active, if I understand, they've been active at IVI for quite a long time, but incorporated in this WHO organism, if I can say, or hub um, recently to match international standards. Is that correct? No. Uh, so WHO and the Ministry of Health and IVI have been a, uh, partners in this um, since the announcement. And it, and it right. took um, you know six months to get the first course up and running, um, mm -hmm. which had um, 
well, the first two courses had between 200 and 300 students each. Uh, last, the last course had, I think, 200 students uh, from low and middle income countries. The government of Korea actually is paying for um, accommodations and the course itself. Uh, mm -hmm. And the countries that are uh, sending students are being asked to support the travel um, related cost. And I think Korea is doing this because it has a vision of um, of the importance of capacity building um, globally. And you know, many of the Korean companies or some of the Korean companies involved in manufacturing are looking at uh, potential uh, potentially providing licenses to different organizations around the world to do manufacturing. Uh, again, as a part of a, a, I guess, a different strategy, rather than having, you know, individual manufacturing plants in one country ma making, you know, a billion or two billion doses of vaccines, the idea that um, that we learned during the pandemic at, at, at great cost was that regional manufacturing may also be very important, particularly in pandemic response. And as we've evolved our thinking around this it's not only regional manufacturing. We can't just focus on manufacturing. What we really have to do is encourage the development of a regional R&D ecosystem, which has sustainable manufacturing as one of its components, but really goes from the beginning, that is the development of uh, the vaccine itself, the development of the kinds of testing that are necessary in order for the vaccine to be approved, the clinical trials uh, for the vaccine, the regulation or the approval of the vaccine, the manufacturing of the vaccine, and then ultimately someone needs to buy it. So if we're not thinking end to end from need to impact, then we're really going to have uh, individual factories that are not sustainable. So as we think about this for Africa or for Latin America, having an ecosystem that supports and, and can, be, can provide uh, technical capabilities to vaccine manufacturing and ultimately can help think through the policy and purchase of those vaccines and the and the use of the vaccines really is going to drive the uh, development of regional manufacturing capabilities. And it's really understanding the full process and supporting um, folks to go through the full process. Um, I, I wanted to learn a little more about the selection process the participants and how, uh, whether some criteria, perhaps other participants need to meet to attend those programs. So it's uh, pretty open. Um, the participants have to come from low and middle income countries, although there may be a, a way to get people from um, higher income countries that don't have vaccine manufacturing uh, through some of the regional development banks. So Asia, um, the ADB or IADB, the Inter-American Development Bank, um, can sponsor students as well. I think this is a special arrangement with the Ministry of Health and Welfare. Um, it's a. It's actually going to seem like a, a bit of a formal process, but um, a call goes out through the Ministry of Foreign Affairs to, to the embassies um, mm -hmm. and requests that they uh, nominate students. And then uh, those names are received and then a selection process occurs and a, a certain number of students as primary um, candidates are picked and then uh, a second uh, batch of uh, backup candidates are picked because it turns out that, you know, uh, not a lot, uh, but some students end up not being able to attend. And so those positions then can be taken up by people on the backup list on the. Um, and. And really, they're looking for people who are going to be involved in manufacturing, 
Um, there have been government officials as well, uh, government officials who might be important for policy or regulation to help them understand uh, what it is, uh, what va vaccine manufacturing and development, um, vaccine R&D and manufacturing are about and, and to help them understand what needs to be in place in different countries in order for that um, manufacturing or, or vaccine research and development to be successful. Um, so there is a process. Uh, it involves WHO and the Ministry of Health and others, and it really is focused on, P on candidates from low and middle income countries, although I think there can potentially be exceptions. Understood. And then once this really comprehensive training is finalized, when, once participants come home, um, you mentioned licenses to continue manufacturing in their home countries. Um, I guess, are the, could you walk through the process of what happens after, what have been some stories from students after they've attended the trainings? Ah, okay. So, you know, vaccine manufacturing is, is rather concentrated uh, around the world. Um, you know, a large number of vaccines, particularly for North America, Europe, and, and other high-income countries are manufactured in North America and Europe, um, some in Japan, Australia, and South Korea. Um, the bulk of vaccines manufactured around the world um, and, and distributed through global health uh, programs, for instance, uh, UNICEF and Gavi, uh, are actually manufactured by Indian manufacturers. So there's a huge concentration of manufacturing in India. Billions of doses a year are manufactured there. Um, so you can imagine these students who are from, I forget how many countries, but I think maybe 60 or 70 different countries are coming to IVI to be trained. Not all the countries have vaccine manufacturing yet uh, within their borders. Some of them will probably never develop uh, vaccine manufacturing. But these skill sets can be used uh, by the government because um, almost all governments uh, receive requests for vaccines to be used in country. And it gives the government officials, for instance, the ability to understand uh, what it is that they need to do in order to uh, meet the applicable international standards. Or it may give academics within, an, um, within a country an understanding of uh, how clinical trials work, how the process of um, of showing safety and efficacy proceeds then through regulatory reviews and approval, and then what happens uh, after the, the approval uh, from a from a regional perspective, from a um, up from a purchasing perspective for vaccines. I mean, these are all part of understanding. So, you know, if we look around, and I'll just pick Africa, um, you know, the Institute Pasteur Dakar is the only manufacturer of a WHO pre-qualified vaccine in Sub-Saharan Africa. Um, South Africa has uh, vaccine manufacturers that are largely doing what we call fill and finish. They take products made elsewhere and they put them into vials and put labels on them. Um, South Af we're, we're working with one of the companies in South Africa to technology transfer the ability to manufacture a simplified version of oral cholera vaccine uh, from start to finish. Um, and, and we're really um, pretty confident this, this will be successful. Um, but as you look around Africa, you know, who can regulate a vaccine? Who can actually, um, which national regulatory authority can review a vaccine from the time it's, its manufacturing starts within the country's borders? And actually at this point, there are only two. Only Egypt and South, South Africa have that capability. There are other countries 
for instance, Ghana, Tanzania, that have what we call maturity level three, what used to be called a functional regulatory authority, there need to be more. And these regulatory authorities need to be able to regulate vaccine manufacturing within a country's borders. Now, oddly, Senegal does not. It has a WHO pre-qualified vaccine. That vaccine is actually approved in France. So again, we have to figure out how to make this whole system work uh, in order to um, to really make regional manufacturing sustainable and effective. And in, and so the courses at IVI are an amazing place for that, for people to understand how the whole system works. And you mentioned, we'll jump to the next topic now with collaborations. You mentioned a little bit about collaborations with um, entities and private entities uh, in South Africa just now. But I'm curious about other hubs. We've seen in Korea different kinds of programs that take students from often LMICs and um, bring them to Korea. They will learn on scale and then go back to their home countries to implement it. I'm thinking of programs driven by ASEAN and the uh, Asian Development Bank. Um, I'm wondering if you could touch on potential collaborations you have between the WHO hub, IVI, and those other quote-unquote hub-like programs. And uh, if in the future, there'll be an ecosystem where students will potentially cycle through the South African hub and then the South Korean hub, and then these different hubs to have a uh, more complete education, perhaps, or more a broadened view on vaccine manufacturing and biomanufacturing in general? That's a great question, um, <laughs> because it gets to the grand plan at WHO. And the grand plan um, would initially start in the biomanufacturing training hub. Mm -hmm. uh, students who are trained there could then move on to the RNA training hub in South Africa or uh, they could be picked up at one of the spokes. So the WHO, I guess, conceives of this as a hub, particularly the mRNA training hub with spokes. So Afrogen runs the training hub. Um, BioVac in South Africa is one of the spokes. So they could actually do the manufacturing. This Institut Pasteur in Dakar is also a spoke. So uh, you can see students either going through the training facility at uh, Afrogen, or they could be, um, you know, trained at Afrogen and then move on to BioVac or Isubester Dakar um, or one of the other uh, sites in Africa that may soon have uh, mRNA manufacturing capacity. And I'm thinking then that BioNTech has a facility that is uh, being built now uh, in, in Rwanda. Um, and also uh, Moderna has a facility that is um, on the books for Kenya. And so you can imagine that, you know, within Africa, which, you know, is a billion people and has almost no intrinsic vaccine manufacturing, less than 1% of the vaccines used in Africa are manufactured in Africa. If we're going to start doing things, uh, there will need to be a trained workforce. Um, and so collaborations are critical and collaborations then between the hubs and coordination of training between the a manufacturing training hub, the mRNA training hub, um, between the hub itself and the spokes. And, and IVI is actually working with several of the, um, the spokes, like you know, BioVac, around not mRNA vaccines, but a different vaccine, with Institut Pasteur Dakar around training and potentially around um, a vaccine development project. Um, 
with other organizations around the world that could soon receive or 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 should are slated to receive um, mRNA technologies through the hub and spokes. But you know the 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 field is changing, and so I've an organ small organization like IVI needs to have partners. And if it's a partner, if we're trying to do something, for instance, in Rwanda, um, what is that? What does the partnership entail? Well, in, in Rwanda, you know, we sh should soon soon start a trial of a new COVID vaccine, which is broadly cross protective. Um, it starts with that. Um, the IVI teams have been on the ground doing training in uh, good clinical practices and and basically teaching uh, uh, clinicians and nurses and and other support staff in Rwanda uh, how to do a clinical trial according to international standards. Um, many of them have that experience already. If you know we were to go to Africa, uh, there are many sites that have supported clinical trials. Um, that have been regulated by the US FDA or the European Medicines Agency. So there are some highly qualified sites. To the extent that it's possible, IVI likes to use those sites to train other sites within the region. Again, the idea of South-South triangular cooperation is a really important part of ensuring that um, the capacity within the region is utilized to the to the to the best extent. And again, this is a part of, as you said, collaboration. Um, there are higher, there are different types of research collaboration. So, you know, IVI receives funding from CEPI, from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, from the Wellcome Trust, uh, from organizations I know many people have never heard of, like the LeDuc Foundation or Open Philanthropy. And all of these go towards our central mission of, of developing and testing vaccines and getting vaccines approved, but also to our central mission of training. So, for instance, let's see, we wanted to do uh, a trial of a cholera, uh, sorry, a typhoid conjugate vaccine in Nepal. In order to do that, um, the, the hospitals, which had not done um, vaccine-related research, so the kind of uh, vaccine trials that we do in phase one, phase two, and phase three, um, we started training in Nepal, um, and IVI staff went there and trained people on how to, to do a clinical trial, how to uh, meet what we call GCP, good clinical practices. And then we flew them from Nepal to India, where they went through the same training on the spot in an actual site that was doing training, that was doing a clinical trial. And it, it's this kind of training that builds confidence and, and, and capabilities in sites around the world. Now, sites in Nepal, were subsequently chosen for a Sanofi trial. So now moving from an IVI-sponsored trial of a SK bioscience conjugate vaccine to a COVID vaccine made by Sanofi. And at the end of the phase three, that vaccine now has been approved. The, the Nepal site, according to Sanofi, did an amazing job. And now Sanofi is going to use them on a second set of trials. Um, so again, you know, our mission is not only testing vaccines, it's about creating the capacity in countries around the world to participate in the testing of vaccines, and then hopefully to become more sophisticated in how they approach questions around vaccine development and access. So when I was working in uh, with HIV vaccines, um, the government of Thailand, which is very ahead of its time in 2000, um, in the year 2000 or so, insisted 
that if Thailand participated in a phase three trial of an HIV vaccine, that the two companies, in this case, it was a small American biotech called Vaxgen and a large uh, French company called Sanofi, um, that they both the companies agreed to access provisions. So they secured the right to get the vaccine for Thailand by participating in the phase three trial. Again, we don't do that a lot, but this is the kind of thing that countries can think about as they're um, helping to test vaccines that are going to be important uh, for global health. So the Thai, the Thai government negotiated separately with the two different companies was if the vaccine is shown to be successful, then the Thai government will receive either the ability to manufacture it or the ability to purchase the vaccine at a reasonable cost. And the specifics weren't worked out. Those details were, were reserved for if the vaccine were successful, because of course those are very detailed legal negotiations. You don't want to spend a lot of time developing those legal things until you know the vaccine is going to work. So the commitments were there though on paper from both companies to the Thai government as a, as a way of acknowledging the Thai government's support for the phase three trials. So as we think about this, as we think about everything we do, we have to think that in the end, it's access and equity that are going to be important for impact. And um, countries and companies need to think about that. Right. And for for listeners who may not be familiar with this world, they can perhaps start to see all the connections and how important access and equitable access is um, to medicine. And we've gone around the world. Let's come back to Korea now and uh, talk slightly about um, the setting of these hubs and especially IVI, which although IVI is not a governmental uh, organization, it is in Korea, in South Korea, and the WHO hub is, uh, IVI um, Sorry, runs uh, the WHO hub in collaborations with different partners, including South Korea. Um, and so I'm wondering about, uh, we've seen, that President Yoon is continuing the previous efforts on um, improving Korean uh, by manufacturing development, but also just overall R&D medical development uh, with earlier this year, a group being formed uh, with the goal of creating two blockbuster drugs by 2027, um, as well as other such goals of um, a larger place of South Korea in the um, biomedical R&D scene. And I'm wondering, how organizations like IVI who are based that are based in South Korea or hubs that are based in Korea see the environment shift, how they it's been changing in South Korea since IVI has been uh, around for a long time. Um, given this excitement for vaccines that started pre-pandemic and how you foresee it grow um, over the next few years. Uh, that's an interesting question. So IVI uh, does different things uh, with different countries, and it, and it really depends on the state of development within the country. Um, so I think, and you probably covered this in your paper, the Korea's trek towards vaccine uh, independence, I think, began after the uh, avian influenza pandemic in 2010, when they were kind of notified uh, put on alert by the U.S. government that U.S. government laws allow the U.S. government to take vaccine manufactured within its borders for national security reasons. And, you know, so I, basically uh, that's vaccine nationalism, right? I mean, that's the ability of a country to say, 
we understand that you have a contract uh, and you purchased vaccine, but our needs come before your needs. Uh, so in 2010, Korea was 80% dependent on outside sources for vaccine and maybe the number 11 vaccine manufacturer globally. And, you know, that's not a, if global systems are working properly and access and manufacturing um, is always going to be keep up with demand, then that's not a problem. What we do know is that vaccines take a while to, to be developed and manufactured. And so that for the Korean government, it then became a question of vaccine security. And, you know, vaccine security, pandemic security are all a part of your national security plan. And so people, uh, including some scientists from IVI, were involved in, um, in helping the Korean government to come up with something called Vaccine 3.0, which was a plan to make Korea 80% self-sufficient in vaccines and the number five vaccine manufacturer in the world. And I remember our board actually heard an early version of this plan in late 2014. And, you know, these are people who are not uh, from Korea. They don't understand. They're from, you know, countries in North America, Europe, Africa, and other parts of Asia where they don't do this kind of industrial planning. And they said, why would you want to do that? I mean, you know, the system works. Why would you want to become a vaccine manufacturer? I mean, you know, the Indians manufacture vaccines at a dollar a dose. What market would you possibly have? And why would you want to do this? But by 2016, the Korean government had passed vaccine 3.0, which put a two pilot plants, one in Andong and one in Hwasan for viral and bacterial vaccines and created a vaccine research center. By uh, 2018, the Wright Foundation, well, it was the Wright Fund at that point, now it's the Wright Foundation, which is a partnership between Gates, the Korean government and Korean companies for drugs, vaccines and diagnostics for global health was founded. And that allows you to get things out of the laboratory into the clinic. So over what we would call the first valley of death. So you can see how this is progressing, right? We have pilot manufacturing, a vaccine research center, an ability to move things out of the laboratory into the clinic. And then in, um, in 2020, the government started to fund these large R&D hubs. Mm -hmm. And so what would an R&D hub do? Well, R&D hubs are, um, and the US NIH does similar things around particular vaccines, HIV vaccine or inf um, a universal flu vaccine. It's, you know, 200 to $400 million over five to seven years to develop vaccines that are of interest or uh, to the government to, to either develop cutting edge technology, to import the kind of platforms that are needed in order to develop that technology. But at the same time, what is it doing? It's training technicians and PhDs and people to work in a biomanufacturing industry. Mm -hmm. And so they have one for what we call the EPI vaccines, the standard vaccines that children get um, uh, you know, routinely. There's one for mRNA, we call it the mRNA hub, but it's got a, a different name. And then we, there's one for uh, global vaccines, global health vaccines. And so again, think about these five to seven year projects the Korean government is saying, okay, we think mRNA is an important technology. We want to develop uh, cutting edge mRNA technology that creates our own IP or allows us to access um, different kinds of uh, things and, and create new vaccines or biologics uh, that could be based on this technology. And we'll train people to work in an industry that is doing that. Again, 
not something we think about in the United States. I know I'm coming from the U.S. Army, where we actually do plan things from end to end. But we always assume industry will take care of itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, in this case, you know, they're going from you know 20% independence to 80% independence, and they're going to need to have the ability to do that, um, both from a technological perspective, but from a human infrastructure perspective. So then, in in 2021, of course, the um, K vaccine effort, which is $2 billion, which again, starts Korea on the road to building those manufacturing plants that will become um, you know, a source of vaccine security in the next pandemic or a globally competitive biomanufacturing industry. Um, and it's not only around vaccines, it's around other biologics like monoclonal antibodies where Korea already provides almost 50% of the world's supply of of monoclonal antibodies. And that is a very big business. Monoclonal you know, antibodies, Sorry, vaccines, you know, before COVID, the biggest vaccine was $7 billion a year. I mean, monoclonal antibodies are much, much larger um, markets uh, from a revenue generation perspective. Um, so again, you know, as you're thinking about blockbuster vaccines or biologics, if you're thinking around, you know, the potential for uh, biomanufacturing industry to contribute jobs, um, largely green jobs um, that are high paying and highly skilled, um, you know, Korea has some advantages and and the government has thought through a way to do that. So remember in, in 2010, Korea was 20% self-sufficient. It's now between 40 and 50%. And the goal is to be 80% by 2025. So again, they're making progress. I don't know if they'll make that. And I don't know if they'll be the number five vaccine manufacturer by 2025, but they will be on the way. And it's been amazing to see that progress and how ideas been contributing to that progress over time. Um, to I realize uh, we're close to time. So to wrap us up, um, a question about the context of how most of our listeners have tuned in to this conversation, which is the unfortunate COVID-19 pandemic. Um, earlier in um, Earlier this year, the WHO Director General announced the end of the COVID-19 emergency, health emergency. And as of now, there's still this excitement around public health, pandemic prevention, building vaccine capacity uh, throughout the world. Uh, But it's a question to ask on how to keep the momentum alive now that this emergency has faded away. Uh, for a good cause, uh, people are getting better, thankfully, and now we have vaccines to address the virus. But still, we need to keep this effort going to prevent other health disasters. And so, I'm wondering what your thoughts are on how uh, we can pro- continue this effort and keep the excitement in different spheres, whether public or private, and how IVI is helping towards uh, that effort as well. Okay, thanks. That those great questions. Actually, you know, it turns out I don't think I fully answered your previous question. How did I be in there? I understand. So <laughs> yeah, you know the um. So with the generation of the right foundation, you know, IVI again, you know, oh sorry, if we start with vaccine 3.0, we have um, a laboratory that's built into that system, mm-hmm. uh, and and are helping the Andong and Hwasan facilities mm-hmm. uh, with different pilot manufacturing with the right foundation. Actually, we were there with the Korean government and the Gates Foundation uh, to bring them together and to put the package together. Mm-hmm. Going to speak to all the Korean companies to see if they would contribute to to this fund with the uh, vaccine hubs, actually we're a part of all three hubs, but a IVI scientist was 
advising the government on on um, how and 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 for what purposes to structure the hubs. And then with Vaccine 3.0, we have the Global Training Hub uh, mm-hmm. implementation effort. So we've been a part of advisory committees for the government throughout this process. And um, and it's been a real honor to do that. Now, with regard to COVID, um, it's going to be important to sustain momentum. But in the absence of a threat, we know that that momentum will start to decrease. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if we break it apart into different elements, right, the um, Probably the most significant piece that that came out of the pandemic was the impact of the inequities. You know, there was an inequity in diagnostics. There was an inequity in um, manufacturing. There was an inequity in the distribution of research and development funding for vaccine development. So CEPI, for instance, funded um, country uh, companies in North America, Europe, and Australia, and Hong Kong, all high-income countries, where you know, 60% of the vaccines made globally are made in India and China, and they didn't get a part of the R&D funding. What would have happened if they had? Would we have had more vaccine more quickly? Um, there was an uh, inequity in where the vaccine manufacturers were located, and there was inequity in the allocation of supply. And, and finally, there was a huge inequity, and, in, you know, we talk about supply all the time, but basically in 2021, so one year into the, so at the end of the second year of the pandemic, we had manufactured 11 billion doses of COVID vaccine. And many of those vaccines were just sitting unused by the end of the year. Even though a significant portion of people in low and middle income countries hadn't been vaccinated, that failure of implementation is critical mm-hmm. and will continue to be a problem unless we can address the inequity in healthcare delivery and infrastructure. So. The field is vast and, you know, can be related to other parts of global health and, and really need to be tied in to make a bigger and better case uh, for why we need to be prepared for the next time and, and how this is going to strengthen um, a series of different global health goals um, that are tied into the sustainable development goals. So, again, we're not just we can't now at this point just focus on the pandemic. What we need to do is focus on on all the other things that are going to be important in order to be prepared and how important these are and how these are playing into all the other things. You know, the negative impact of climate change on transmissible diseases, well, vaccines can help. Um, The impact of uh, vaccination on things like education. During COVID, we lost two years worth of education in countries that were locked down. Those years will never be made up. I mean, we saw it in the United States. It's even a more dramatic impact in low and middle income countries where the training and education of cohorts of students we know have really, really important impact for the long-term economic health of the country. So let's start then from manufacturing. Right now, people have committed, I mean, actually written that they will provide $5 billion for manufacturing in Africa. That's been two years that we've had that money. Almost none of it is spent. Mm -hmm. That's a threat. It's not a threat because we can't use the money because, of course, in global health, that money will go to fund something else. But we have the opportunity and we have the funding. We know what we need to do and that we need to do it quickly. But it's not moving. We need to overcome that because we need to start showing things. Otherwise, people will lose interest and we'll just say, well, that's just another thing 
pie in the sky. You know, we thought we could build manufacturing, uh, sustainable manufacturing in Africa or Latin America, and it'll just never happen. And people are already saying that. So we have to stop that. The, the second part of this has to do with the things that, that we're lacking, right? I mean, one of the key elements here is global leadership. Who, I mean, during the pandemic, right? We had the US government, we had the European Union, we had WHO, we have the regional WHO um, elements. Who is actually in charge? Mm -hmm. Nobody. Mm -hmm. um, and who is directing where the vaccine was going to go or who is going to ensure that, that the COVAX was appropriately funded and did what it was supposed to do, which is vaccinate 20% of the uh, at-risk population globally uh, by the end of 2021. Again, we missed that target. Um, and maybe 8 million people died as a result of that. So we need something called the pandemic treaty. The pandemic treaty is in discussions. The provisions are already being watered down. Because you can imagine that it involves things like intellectual property. I mean, really important things, things that we need to work out before another pandemic hits us. And, you know, these are always going to be compromises, which is fine. Um, but we need to have a certain minimum package in order to be able to respond. So the pandemic treaty, the pandemic fund. So after the pandemic, people said, ah, we well, you know we need a fund to support all the things we need to do, including you know, manufacturing, healthcare infrastructure, preparedness in low and middle income countries, we need $10 billion. Now the estimate has been revised. We need even more than, than $10 billion and we've received 2 billion. Mm. So under funding of the pandemic fund, again, gets to the idea that we have a very limited attention span, just I think as global society. Um, and we're going to lose the ability to focus on the things that are important. And it's gonna leave us critically unprepared for the next pandemic, which we know will come, right? And, um, and then the, the final element of this has to do with, and, and I you know we always bring this up, but um, there used to be a tremendous global consensus on the benefit of vaccination. It's what drove the uh, development of Gavi and, and these mechanisms, the Global Fund, these mechanisms to provide vaccines to people who are living in low and middle income countries who could otherwise not afford it. You know, we went from less than 20% of the world, children in the world receiving uh, vaccines that were necessary, the, the standard um, childhood vaccines, to now over 80% of them get that. Mm -hmm. And that arose out of a global consensus that vaccines and vaccination in particular were real drivers of benefit. I mean, it's estimated that for every dollar we invest in vaccination, we save $54 in healthcare costs. But it has benefits above and beyond, you know, money and dollars. It has benefits on children who are vaccinated have um, end up being better educated. They don't skip school because they're, they're sick. People who are um, families that vaccinate their children end up not going into poverty. So if a child gets sick and mother stays home to take care of the child, a family loses one income earner. And that puts families in poverty, that uh, has them drop below the poverty line for nine months on the average. And, and those have critical long-term effects. So vaccines are not just about, you know, giving an injection and preventing a disease. They actually have much, much broader uh, benefit for societies. And we've lost the consensus. You know, one of the things that the misinformation campaigns did during COVID is they undermined uh, 
what had been a remarkable consensus around the benefit of vaccines for children. And, and that has undermined confidence in vaccines and vaccination globally. The second part is, you know, the idea that we didn't relay well, which is, you know, vaccines are actually important throughout your life. Now, I understand it, it was a remarkable thing and an important thing to vaccinate children. But increasingly, you and I are going to be told that we should take vaccines when we're as we're older. Um, a vaccine against respiratory syncytial virus, now approved. Vaccines against uh, pneumococcal pneumonia, long approved. Vaccines against influenza or against um, shingles. You know, all vaccines that we we give to adults. COVID-19 vaccines, again, something that we give to elderly, to the elderly. So if we think about vaccines, not as just for children, but as something that we take throughout our life in order to prevent debilitating disease, then, you know, we will reachieve that consensus, but it's going to take work. Mm -hmm. And still a lot of work to do, but so much beautiful work has been done. Again, a year and a half later after the opening of the hub. Thank you so much, Dr. Kim, for walking us through this journey and uh, as well as IVI's journey. And I hope perhaps I see you next year for another check-in on uh, the new and even greater achievements uh, that you have led. So thank you so much for your time today. Thanks, Ali. Thank you, Dr. Kim. That was, um, like I said at the start, I get to learn so much. And so if if the goal is to learn something new every day, I've I've more than exceeded that goal uh, for today. Um, uh, and thank you, uh, Salome, for joining us again to help further this discussion, uh, which is really a key objective uh, of KEI. So I think that last point on consensus was a, or waning consensus rather, is a somber one, but but I think an important one to to hit. Um, and so, what little part we you know we can do uh, in holding events like this, um, you know, we will continue to do so. So I want to thank again a special thanks to Dr. Kim for joining us during what I'm sure is a very busy schedule um, and then alert our, our viewers and our listeners to always future ongoing program on, on Korea, its relations with other countries and its place in the world uh, moving forward, issues of energy security, economic security uh, and global health issues, which as Dr. Kim you know, rightly alluded to, aren't going anywhere uh, anytime soon. So thank you once again, and we look forward to, to future engagement. Thanks. Thank you.